Hebrews 3 uh, begins a, a, a new topic. It's a new section of the overall argument of Hebrews. Uh, and that argument is that in Jesus we have something uh, better. Uh, and better not in some kind of casual way, not in some subjective way. It's not, mm, you know, I, I think I like Ford's better than Holden's. Or Carlton is better than Collingwood. That's probably not subjective, but we'll let that one go. iPhones are better than Androids. It's a statement. It's, a, it's an idea of absoluteness, of irreducible certainty. Jesus is better. Chapters 1 and 2 introduced some of the main themes of the epistle and presented us also with this argument that Jesus is superior to angels, superior to even these great spiritual beings. And now the author continues to build what he, what he wants us to have as a confidence. He's building a case to give us confidence that Jesus Christ is the climax of redemptive history, the fulfillment of all of God's Old Testament promises and prophecies and patterns, that Jesus is the better object of faith and the better provider of salvation and life in relationship with God. That's, a, that's the, what the author wants to get across the table in this letter. And so as chapter 3 begins, the author wants to remind us of who uh, Jesus has made us and remind us of why Jesus can affect such a radical change of identity in us, such a radical change of character, position uh, and access, position before God and access to God. And that who we are is held in place by considering Jesus, or as the NIV translates it, <clears throat> fixing our thoughts on Jesus. That is to not allow how you understand and interpret your faith to be distracted or derailed by environments and circumstances that are all, all really subjected to Jesus. Like we've seen that in the opening of this letter, that all things are subject to Jesus. But, pers but persevere in all of these things through considering Jesus, who he is to us in the situations that we find ourselves in what he has done for us regardless of who we are. That was kind of a lesson that Peter learned in Matthew 14, uh, verses 30 to 33 of the main ones. Peter, had Peter uh, kept an undivided heart towards Jesus, ability to keep him walking across the Sea of Galilee, this is where Jesus calls Peter out of the boat and he starts walking across the sea towards Jesus. Had he kept an undivided heart towards him, in spite of the waves and all that was going on around him, Peter would have just been able to keep on walking, him and Jesus would have made the shore, and the other guys would have just been rowing that boat. Now that story is not in the Bible to encourage us to try and walk on water. It is there to encourage us to fix our thoughts on Jesus and not the environments and the powers and the cultures that seek to distract us from fixing our thoughts, fixing our eyes on Jesus. You don't need to be able to walk on water you just need to be able to walk through life with Jesus. We have a tendency to allow other voices to speak to us more than Jesus has spoken to us. We have a tendency to allow our thoughts, what, what shape our worldview, to be shaped more by culture, more by environments, more by circumstances than the living reality of Jesus that we've come to know in our lives. And this was the issue with the original receivers of this letter. They were full of thoughts about returning to more uh, familiar and safer environments that, that they had in Judaism. They felt a pull back towards a religious expression that was um, 
of, of legalism, of self-merited uh, faith-based activities, their own productivity and input. Um, and they felt the pull back to like a non-offensive faith. And by non-offensive, I don't mean, you know, you, you literally offend people because you're being some kind of intolerant jerk. I mean, your, your life causes discomfort because you are living an effective alternative narrative. Like the, 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 the actual life of Jesus is starting to bear witness in yours. Like you actually love your neighbors. You actually care about the environment. You're in this community of people here that practices repentance and forgiveness and selfless service towards each other in a way that fosters unity and love, not indifference or individualism. Like, like you, you're actually in that and doing that. The writer of Hebrews is giving his audience, them and, and our, by extension us, the means to, to, to do this, to not be distracted by environments and circumstances and start to, to sink in this world, to not be deceived by sin or suffer the hardening of the heart through rebellious unbelief, which is what we find the author warning us about uh, from about verse 7 through to the end of, of where Bev read, but we're, we're not going to get into that today. The writer uses the language here in this little section of, of direct address just to kind of grab the attention of the audience. He moves, as he moves into this new section, he's no longer just speaking in general terms. Like he's, he's been pretty sermonic and now he's going, hey, you people, listen, I'm talking to you now. He's grabbing their attention, speaking gone from the general terms, but to them, you who share. The proceeding, therefore, once again, serves as this imperative action because of what has already been said with respect to the person and the work of Jesus towards you who share in that work, like you corporate, all that there, but each and every single individual one of you, I now remind you of how God sees you because of that. Because of what God has done in and through Jesus, he's changed your identity, he's changed your purpose and destiny. And then there's this description of you are holy brothers and sisters because you've responded to God's call of salvation, this, this heavenly invitation. The means of this new identity is, is not merited to you, but rather to the heavenly plan of salvation and the faithfulness of Jesus, who God sent to be our better high priest one who mediates between humanity and God. The use of the term Adelphoi, it turns up everywhere. The ESV translates it brothers. The NIV translates it brothers and sisters, which is what its actual meaning is. It calls to mind the preceding argument that Christ is not ashamed to call those who call on him, who trust in him, brothers and sisters. Our common relationship with Jesus produces a new family in which there, is, there, there are no orphans or, or, or those who are kind of super privileged, but all have equal access to and enjoy the presence and the glory of the Father. And this is not due to the old works of Moses and Aaron, but to Jesus as high priest who, who has entered into the heavenlies. We saw that you know the week before that he's gone before us and now he sits with the Father and, and those who... Uh, trust and, and following him have, have that access there. And it highlights the importance and the significance of the church. Christians are a family who share their faith together. 
And as we share in this heavenly calling, this, this work of God in our lives, we are to consider Jesus. Like it's not just some vague gathering. We gather around Jesus, who he is, what he did. At the heart of this community is Jesus, and considering him shapes and secures our faith and our life. The idea that you can know God in splendid isolation that you, and that you can fully know yourself and not be deceived by sin, which is the warning later, or, or tempted by unbelief, stands in total opposition of Jesus and your need of him. In fact, if that was true, that you need nothing to live as God has called you to live, we should probably all just stop. You just stick your hand up. We'll worship you. Because the only person who has ever done that, fits that description, is Jesus. And he says, gather and consider him. You who share, plural, corporate, gather and consider. The distinction of holy is important as well. It, it, it doesn't communicate that this is a family of perfect siblings. Uh, who have somehow kind of through their own efforts overcome sin and unbelief, but rather siblings who have encountered the same uh, transformative, gracious work of, of sanctification, that, that Jesus has cleansed us, that Jesus has enabled us to die to sin, that, that, that the sacrifice that Jesus has made has had an effect on our lives through the work of the Spirit. He has, he has sanctified us. He has made us this holy people. The designation of being holy would have evoked in this Jewish audience an understanding that holiness is not something that humans can achieve, but needs to be achieved on their behalf through this whole Old Testament sacrificial system. Now what the writer is telling us is that Jesus has achieved that on our behalf, and he has imputed that to us. God has acted to rescue and create a new community of holy brothers and sisters out of natural-born enemies of humanity and natural-born enemies towards God. God has effected in you, through Jesus, access to the presence of God. It's a relationship and a status that uh, overmasters the usual things that divide us, like gender inequality, singleness and marriedness, Politics, economics, ethnicity and heritage, they are no longer a walls that cause division and hostility. As Paul says, a slave has become your brother. You are fundamentally set apart as God's peace people precisely because of your faith in Jesus has made you this, this holy brothers and sisters. And because your holiness is due to Jesus, sacrificial work to achieve this, you should continue to come to together and consider this how does this get worked out what does this look like the gospel is not just the power of an event of salvation it is also how you stay faithful how you persevere the evidence of being holy is that you continue to desire to be shaped by jesus you should have your thoughts, your relationships, uh, this community, your individuality shaped by the person and the work of Jesus. The author of Hebrews reminds us that a better way of interpreting life in relationship to Jesus, that this is the better way of interpreting life. It's interpreted in relationship to Jesus. Considering Jesus should 
animate uh, like our intellectual patterns uh, of all believers and, and, and recalibrate um, our worldview to a, to a biblical worldview. Considering Jesus is not done vaguely or abstractly or out of your own imagination, but rather is done according to how Scripture reveals who he is, his character. Uh, it's done in accordance to the, the theological context in which the Bible presents Jesus. And if we are going to consider who Jesus is, we, we must think about him rightly. Like you don't get to make up your own special little Jesus that fits your special little categories or needs. The author now highlights two aspects of the person and the work of Christ that are presented to us in Scripture. He is our apostle and he is our high priest. That, that's our confession. That's what we, we say about who he is in our lives. We don't often hear about Jesus being referred to as an apostle. And that might be because we tend to see the word as a name, as a noun, and not an activity, a, a, a verb. Apostles just means sent one. And that's why, uh, you know, the 12, once um, um, Matthias, Matthias had joined them, are called apostles. They are commissioned by Jesus to go and bear witness to who he was and what he did. He, he sent them into the world, apostles. In the same way, God sent the Son as his apostle. He sent one to bear witness, to speak on behalf of God as God to do the will of, of God towards humanity and rescue them from sin and death and to initiate this new humanity of brothers and sisters. And Jesus is a high priest. And in this uh, role, he's, he's functioning in the opposite direction as one representing humanity before God, offering himself for us, making a better sacrifice on our behalf. His work is the basis for our access to God. His work is the basis for our holiness. Jesus is uniquely both apostle sent by God and priest who serves humanity before God. He performs both functions because he is both God and man. Jesus is the one who truly and uniquely uh, united humanity and God. He, he bridges the gap between a holy God and sinful people by delivering God's message of salvation that we might respond and repent and, and be made holy. The next thing the author has for us to consider about Jesus is his faithfulness. It is better than even Moses's. William Lane, in his commentary, he points out that it's difficult to exaggerate the importance of Moses in Judaism and the veneration which in which he was regarded. He, he's just this iconic figure. You know, God used Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus, an event that becomes uh, a definitive model of how God uh, acts on behalf of his people. God uses Moses to deliver the law to the people of Israel. Moses was entrusted to set up the whole uh, sacrificial system and, and the temple, temple worship. Moses was responsible for initiating or the initial, sorry, recording of most, most of the first five books of the Bible. His place of honour and his faithfulness to what God called him to was exemplary. And the author of Hebrews agrees. Moses is depicted as someone deserving of glory and of, God, he, and of God's faithful servant. And when he's doing this, he's just quoting numbers 
12, like it's, he's just quoting scripture to describe who Moses is. And yet, Jesus is much more glorious than Moses. And even faithful to a, a much uh, greater role and position in, in the work of re- redemptive history, salvation history. But both Moses and Jesus are worthy of honour. It's not that Moses was wrong and Jesus had to come and fix his mistakes. Jesus did not fix or correct Moses, but rather Jesus fills up and completes all that Moses pointed to, all that Moses foreshadowed. Moses' ministry was one of a servant that existed to testify about things to come. That's what Deuteronomy 18, 15 tells us. The Lord your God will raise you up a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him that you should listen to. It's not that God used Moses to build one house and one group of people known as Israel and then Jesus comes along and builds a different but better house and and people of God. It's not so much contrast, even though Moses and Jesus are totally different positions, but rather this is a picture of continuation. Both are working towards the same plan of God. It's just that one has a role within the household as a servant and the other has a role over the household as its creator, as the son, the heir of all things. The author links the work of the son over the house as being the equivalent to the work of God with respect to this creative capacity. God is the builder of all things, and yet it's the Son who's been spoken about here. But it's not only is Jesus the builder over the house, he is the one who inherits the house. It is his from creation to completion. Both are worthy of glory and praise. Both have been faithful to what God sent them to do. But only one is worthy of worship, and only one is over the people of God as their creator, redeemer, and completer. Not, not within God, uh, not within the people of God as a servant. To this end, Jesus is better than Moses. He holds a superior role in the redemptive work of God. He has a superior position, and that position is eternal. Moses was faithful with his limited place in the household. Jesus is faithful with his unlimited place over the household. Moses anticipates salvation. Jesus is salvation. Moses is venerated as this high priest who himself enjoyed the immediacy of God's presence. But now, because of of being united in faith with Jesus, all of you, all, all the members of this household, have all been summoned to the highest reaches of heaven where you all enjoy access to God through Jesus, the better high priest. To be brothers and sisters is to have God as a father, a relationship of intimacy and provision. The writer now places uh, his audience in God's unfolding, continuing plan of redemption. They are not to think of the Old Testament as irrelevant. But rather, in Christ, Christians have become heirs of the promises that were made to the forefathers, like like Abraham through to Isaac. As Paul points out in Galatians 3.29, you are Christ, you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You are the continuation of God's people. Israel and the church are not two separate peoples of God. There is only one people of God. And the church is the continuation and the fulfillment of that household. 
as followers of Jesus, as those who have heard and responded to the great salvation that he offers, you are not rejecting the the veracity of Judaism. You are participating in what it promised. Those who are faithful to Jesus are God's households and heirs of the world to come. That is what Jesus has made you. When you consider Jesus, remember who he is and, and what he has made you. This is your confidence. This is your boast. The one who builds all things, the one who put the whole universe together, who created Moses, who created you, who creates all things and recreates all things, brings recreational salvation, is building you and he is building this holy community. Now there's a confidence and a boast that you can kind of go to sleep with. And again, Paul sheds light on it in Ephesians 2, 19-22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's the continuity of new and old, right? Christ himself being the cornerstone, like he is the cornerstone of the prophets and what the apostles said, in whom the whole structure is being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church, the holy brothers and sisters, is this visible expression of the transformative power of Christ to bring holiness and, and, and fullness of life into a person and then and then display how that gets lived out in a community through the power of the Holy Spirit. We are being built together, not individually. We are we are put together to show the goodness and the glory uh, of God through considering Jesus together. In our world today, uh, the spirit of individualism reigns supreme. The spirit of individualism disciples and distracts you toward sin. It's this deceitfulness of sin and towards unbelief in, in self-expression, self-actualization. You are the captain of your own identity and your own destiny. You control how your life is to be shaped and expressed with indifference to God and with indifference to others. It is a distracting voice that says you don't need the church. You can fit it in when it suits or when it doesn't interfere with our progress and our comfort at work, at sport, the goals of our achievement and attainment. It's okay to go and consider these things as being most important in life. The spirit of individualism says if you don't like what you hear from the word of God, just find another church that fits your self-expression. You get offended. Something hurts your sensitive feelings. You just leave rather than reconcile or seek to forgive. Because you're not a brother or a sister in Christ. You're a, you're a drifter. That's not to say that you can never leave one church for another. But it is to say how and why. How and why you did that. Did you consider Jesus in the move? Did he shape the shift of your home? Individualism is the spirit of the age and not the spirit that we find in the book of Hebrews. Which says that you are a people of God. And God dwells in your midst. It is his presence that gives us our confidence and our hope. We are, we are not saved to persevere uh, by how awesome we are. But how much we depend on the son. His continued consideration in our lives. It means that considering Jesus the son happens as a community of brothers 
and sisters, as they engage with the word of God together, as they allow the Holy Spirit to transform us and keep us considering Jesus together. It is vital that we be committed to encouraging one another to think appropriately about Jesus. He is our confidence. He is our boast and our hope. He is the axiom of of our thoughts and our relationships. And he has given us each other to maintain that considering, to gather in worship, to gather in exploration of of the word, to gather in confession and, and repentance, to gather in perseverance that Jesus is our hope. It's on repeat. In this, in this sermon, in this message of Hebrews, get around each other so that you can preserve in this holy faith. Christians need each other. You, you can't preserve without each other. And per- perseverance is not how we are saved, but rather it is the evidence of, of transformed hearts that are, that are holding fast. And how long? Like for how long should we be doing this? Well, well, the answer comes later. We didn't get to it. But as long as it is called today, until Christ returns, we are being encouraged to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let's pray. Again, loving God, we thank you for your word to us in this, in this sermon of Hebrews uh, that encourages us to gather and to gather to consider Christ, to gather to consider uh, who he is to us, what he has done for us, and to have uh, our lives shaped by that, to have how we go back into our work and our sport and, and the areas of our lives shaped by who Jesus is to us, that these things would not shape us first and then we kind of just try and fit this great salvation of Jesus into that. Uh, Would you, with your spirit who brings this unity, who brings this this grace-driven desire to persevere, continue to work here in this church, continue to foster this kind of brothers and sisters um, community? Do we be just looking across the room and seeing another brother and sister who we can uh, lean on, who we can do life with, who we can talk to Christ about. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.